Many of you would remember the cartoon character Popeye, fictional character created by Elsie Chrysler Seagar. And Popeye first appeared in a comic strip called The Thimble Theater. Just a little bit of trivia there. He appeared uh, in the 10th year of that cartoon strip. It was January 17th, 1929, and he quickly became the main character. Now, Popeye was an underdog. He, he always seemed to be the underdog with a, a great um, desire for canned spinach. Had a mean uppercut and could rip the, can off, the lid off of a can of spinach and eat it. You remember olive oil, bluto, sweet pea, wimpy. Some of, his, some of his most famous sayings, Popeye, will blow me down, right? You remember that? Or, that's all I can stand because I can't stand no more, right? Um, I'm strong to the finish because I eats me spinach. I'm Popeye the sailor man. But the one that I want to borrow for tonight, Popeye said, I am what I am. That's all what I am. And so I borrowed a little bit of that. I kind of rephrased it. I didn't, I didn't say yam. I said am. Okay. Um, I am what I am and that's all I am. Take your Bible and open it to 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's kind of the Apostle Paul's testimony, and, and that's kind of my testimony. And you'll see where we're going with this in just a minute. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to read verses 8 through 12. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul would write, and he's writing it from a Roman prison. And uh, that's the context of what he says. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. God, help us to understand the meaning of this passage, what the Apostle Paul wrote, and how it speaks to us today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So Paul's writing, and, and he basically tells Timothy, Timothy, I am what I am. This is... I, I'm, I'm where God has me. He says, don't be ashamed of the fact that I'm a prisoner in Rome. This is all part of God's plan. Um, he says, instead, share with me in the sufferings of the gospel. In other words, there's a price to pay when you, when, you are, when you are preaching the gospel, Timothy, and so share with me in those sufferings. Don't be afraid to face what the persecution that's coming um, for the gospel. And then what, in verse 9, he says what the gospel's done, it saved us. And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. See, the Apostle Paul, if you go back to Acts chapter 7, he's holding the coats of the men who stoned Stephen, the first martyr. And, and so he was a great persecutor of the church. And yet he says here that he has been called with a holy calling, not according to our works. In other words, he says, when God called me, there was nothing in me that would cause God to call me. And yet God in his, in his providence, in, 
in, in the fact that he's God. He saw something in me he wanted to use, and Timothy, he saw something in you, and so he's called us not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which he's given to us before time began. In other words, Paul says, I'm, I'm an example of that grace. Everybody knew his track record, and he says, I should, I should not be a preacher of the gospel, and yet I am because of the grace of God. And he talks about how the grace has been revealed through Jesus Christ who came. And then in verse 11, he says he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. And it was for all of these reasons, he says, that he suffers, but he's not ashamed because he knows whom he has believed and is persuaded that, that the Lord's able to keep that which he committed to him until that day. Now, there's no way to tell you everything that... This is our last point service before the, the new year. And so there's no way... We, we, did, we finished up our series, and there's no way for me to tell you everything that I believe in one sermon. But if you've been here very long, you, you, you know what I believe. You, you know the things that, that I teach. But I think it's good occasionally for a refresher, a, a review of sorts. Because, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for you guys. You guys come on Wednesday night, and you really like the Bible teaching... But there's a, there's a lot of folks who sit in these pews on Sundays and they have just enough doctrine to be confused. You know, they, they know just enough to be confused. It's kind of like the guy on the college campus wore the, the sweatshirt with the big K on the front and somebody asked him what the K stood for and he said confused. And they said, you don't spell confused with the K, you spell it with the C. And he says, you don't know how confused I am. And, and I think that's the way a lot of the folks that sit in these pews on Sunday morning, they, they just don't know how confused they are. They, they know just of the, enough of the gospel message to be confused. And so lest you be confused, I want to look tonight at what I believe, and, and I think many of you will identify at least with the first three of the four things. All right? And, and it, they're all based on God's Word because uh, His Word is like God Himself. God is immutable. God is eternal. He's infallible, unchanging, incorruptible, undeniable, un, unimpeachable, and all of those things are true about his word. And, and so I want to kind of go back to the start and, and get to where I am today. First of all, I am a Christian by conversion. I, if, if you are a Christian tonight, you are here uh, because of conversion. You know, it, it always cracks me up when people write about born-again Christians. That is redundant. There's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian, all right? Jesus said there's only one type, and, and that's the type who have been born again. So what does it mean when I say I'm a Christian? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I'm a church attender. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not saying I'm a church attender. Now, obviously, I'm a church attender, but that's not what I mean. All Christians, I believe, should be church members and should be church attenders, you show me a, a, a Christian who's not active in a church, and, and I'll show you someone who, as a minimum, is not walking with God like they should be, and, and as a maximum, could actually be lost, could not, could not be part of the bride of Christ. Jesus loved the church. The Scripture says Jesus gave himself for the church, and so we ought to, we ought to be a part of the church, but attending and membership in the church does not make me a Christian. Now, another thing that it does not mean, when I say I'm a Christian, it does not mean uh, I'm one because I'm an American. 
If you've ever traveled overseas on one of our mission trips, you know that a lot of people, especially in Asia, that's the culture I'm most familiar with, they assume that all, Christian, all Americans are Christians. I think that's one of the big problems with the Muslims in the Middle East. They assume that, that all, all Americans are Christians, and so that's why they refer to us as the great Satan. They look at the things that are coming out of America, things that come out of Hollywood and into pornography and all of the other things that are coming out of our culture, and they say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, then I don't want that. I don't need that. And so when I say I'm a Christian, I'm not saying I'm an American. You know, it's kind of like the cat who birthed their kittens in an old stove. Does that make them biscuits? No, of course not. Well, just because you're in America doesn't make you a Christian either. Yes, America, I believe, was founded on Christian principles. I believe our founding fathers founded it on Christian principles. But being American and being Christian are not synonymous so when i say i'm a christian it doesn't mean i'm a church attender or an american it doesn't mean i'm religious when i say i'm a christian it doesn't mean that i'm a religious is it possible to take part in religious activities and still be lost absolutely i passed the i passed the seventh day uh, or not the seventh day Adventist. I, I passed the uh the mormon church there at small house road every sunday place is packed cars are packed they're doing religious activities, but they're lost. And, and if you don't understand that they're lost, you need to read a little bit about what Mormons believe. They'll tell you that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't believe, the same, they don't believe that the same way that you believe it when you say Jesus is the Son of God. See, they believe that he attained Godhood, and, and they have a phrase that they say, as, as uh, we are, he once was, as he is, we one day will be. In other words, they're going to achieve Godhood. And so they're doing religious activities, but they're lost. And so when I say I'm a Christian, it doesn't mean I'm saying I'm religious. Does it mean that I simply believe in God? No. In James 2, James 2, James says, You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so to, to, to say you're a Christian does not mean that you simply believe in God. James says that Satan believes in God, that the demons of hell believe in God. Jesus said in John 14, 1, you believe in God, believe also what? In me. That's what he said. And, and when believe is used in Scripture, when you see the word believed in, in Scripture, it is more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just an intellectual affirmation of understanding of facts. The word believe means commitment. That's why Paul says here in our text, in verse 12, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, are there things that we should intellectually affirm? Absolutely, I, I think there are. The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. I, I believe we ought to understand that and believe that. Uh, that he lived a perfect life. That he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. That his death was substitutionary on the cross. That he died in our place as part of God's redemptive plan. That he took my place, he took your place and our sin on the cross. We ought to believe that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day. That he ascended back to the Father. I believe he's going to return someday and he's going to set up his kingdom on earth for seven years. And after that, there'll be the millennial reign of Christ and then there'll be the new heaven, the new earth. All of those things I intellectually believe and affirm. But believing all those things does not make me a Christian. 
See, I know I'm a sinner and as such deserve God's wrath, but Jesus took my place. Paul says, whosoever calls. Isn't that a great word, whosoever? I remember the old song we used to sing, whosoever surely meaneth me. Uh, great theology in that hymn because it taught people that, listen, when God says whosoever calls in the name of the Lord can be saved, that means you can be saved. I can be saved. In John 3, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. He's one of the Pharisees. He's one of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the muckety-mucks in Israel. He's high up the food chain. And I think he comes at night because he doesn't really want folks to see him going to Jesus and he starts out buttering Jesus up. Now, thankfully, Jesus knows all things, and so Jesus knew his heart. If, if I'm there, I would have said, don't trust him, Jesus. Because Nicodemus starts out, he says, we know that you've come from God because nobody can do these things that you're doing unless they come from God. It's interesting how Jesus responds. He gets all of this praise from Nicodemus, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus cuts to the chase. There's no beating around the bush. Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you, Nicodemus. That's really kind of you to say those things. Now, let me tell you something. No, Jesus just cuts to it. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That verse is why I tell you there is no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. Because Jesus said, if you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God, which means you're not going to heaven. So somebody who says that they are a Christian but not born again is not really a Christian. Because you have to be born again to be a believer. All right? So he, t he tells Nicodemus the procedure. Nicodemus can't understand. Nicodemus says, you know, so am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus wants to clarify the procedure for him. So in verse 5, he says, most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when he says being born of the water, is he talking about baptism? Can baptism save you? Shake your head like that. All right. It can't. He's not talking about baptism. He's talking about the water that, that comes out at birth that brings you into this world. It's not going to bring you into heaven. It's only going to bring you into this world. Then you have to be born by the Spirit, which is what brings you into heaven one day. That's the picture of being born again. So we have a physical birth. Then we have a spiritual birth. Um, it's the only way we have spiritual life. And then Jesus spells out the possibility of being born again in verse 7. Because Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And he says, listen, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus doesn't get it. And so Jesus helps him understand. And I think a lot of people today don't get it. And if they would just stop and think about what these two verses say, what Jesus is saying here, they would get it. Jesus points out that, you can't see the wind, but you can feel it, and you can certainly see the results of it, right? You let a tornado come through. That's some strong wind. If you're there, you'll feel it. And if you live to tell about it, you'll see the results of it. Now, you don't know where it comes from, but you can feel it and see the results of it. In other words, when we are spiritually born again, Jesus says, you can't see it happen, but you know it, 
and you see the results of it. In other words, the person who's saved knows inside. Many of you can remember when you were saved, and you remember it was like, a, it was like the weight of a Mack truck was lifted off your chest. I mean, just the freedom that you felt as you were saved. And, and then the results of it, people see the results of it as you continue to live for Jesus. So he gives Nicodemus that understanding. December 24th. 1978 well December 2nd 1961 I was born of water December 24th 1978 I was born again of the spirit I cried out to Jesus I said I was a sinner I I confessed my belief in him asked him to save me and he did and because of that day I am a Christian by conversion now let me tell you the second thing I am I am Baptist by conviction I am a Baptist by conviction. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the Bible says that we are to, to not forsake the gathering together of the saints, as is the, the regular habit of some, but we are to gather together with like-minded believers, with believers that we can have fellowship with, that believe the same things that we do. Um, you know, in the early church, it was real easy. There was only one denomination, Christian. You know, you, you saw the sign of the fish, you knew they were a believer, and they believed the same thing you did. But through the centuries... Through the centuries, doctrine has changed. Heresies have arisen. So now, Christians are, for, are faced with options to where they belong. For instance, you could go to the church who call themselves Christians and call themselves scientists, but they're neither. They're neither Christian nor scientist. Okay? They believe that the Spirit came upon Christ at His baptism and that it left Him at the cross then the spirit came upon this woman in the 1800s and inspired her a woman by the name of mary baker eddy and um she wrote science and health with key to the scriptures so you could be a part of them i wouldn't recommend it but you could some say that um you have to be born again but they make baptism part of the salvation you could go to the church right up the street and they would tell you that baptism is equally as important as being born again that with that they're two the two sides of the same coin and one without the other you're not saved well scripture says we ought to be baptized as a matter of obedience but it doesn't teach that we that baptism is part of our salvation but there are christians who believe that and you could choose to join up with them um there are some who say that salvation's by grace but then you have to have good works as well, that you can lose your salvation. It's kind of like they believe that what Jesus did at the cross was he made the down payment for our salvation, and then we make monthly installments by the way that we live. And that if we stop making those payments, they're going to repossess our salvation. Church of God, you can lose your salvation. And so you could join up with them, but I wouldn't recommend it, okay? Um, with no church background... In my family, only church background I had is I, I went to a missionary Baptist church for, for vacation Bible school when I was five, and outside of that, we would attend the base chapel, typically at Easter. 
not every Easter, but most Easters. And it was a Protestant service, and so you never knew it could be, it could be a Mormon, it could be a Lutheran, it could be a Methodist. You never knew who was standing in the pulpit. And so when I got saved, and I was the very first one in my immediate family to get saved, well, my dad was saved, he just wasn't walking with the Lord, I got to choose what I was a part of. I could have went with the Church of Christ. I could have went with the Church of God. I could have went with the Christian scientists, but I didn't. I, I went with Baptists. Why? Because I'm a Baptist by conviction. Baptists hold a certain biblical truths. Let me identify some of the biblical truths that Baptists hold to, and this is why, this is why I became a Baptist. First one is inspiration of Scripture, that the Scripture is sufficient for both faith and practice. Now, that's key, that it's sufficient for faith and practice. There are a lot of denominations who don't believe that the Bible is inspired. They don't believe that it's God-breathed. They would tell you that it is a book of history, but, but it's not necessarily a book of fact, that it's not necessarily, that, that it has fiction, that it's not inerrant, that it's not infallible. Well, Baptists not only affirm the inspiration of it, they take it a step further and say it's sufficient for faith and practice. What does that mean? Well, for instance, Catholics want to balance the Scripture with their church tradition. They bring in their traditions, and they bring in Scripture, and they are equal. The things that they have practiced through the years are equal with the Scripture. Baptists say the Scripture is all we need in order to know how to live. It doesn't matter how Baptists lived 100 years ago that the Scripture is sufficient for faith and practice. If you want to know how you should live as a believer, the answer is right here. You don't have to read the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, although you can and you can learn a lot. What you ha what, all you have to know how to live as a Christian is to read the Bible because it's inspired and it's sufficient for faith and practice. So that's one of the reasons I chose to be a Baptist. Another one is the competency of the soul. The competency of the soul. That simply means that you and I don't have to go through a priest to get to God. When you want to pray to God, you don't have to come to me. When you want to confess to God, you don't have to come to me. Paul told Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so the competence of the soul. That, now what that means is, you've also probably heard this, the priesthood of the believer. Okay? It, it's really the same thing. And what does a priest have? A priest has some ministerial responsibilities, right? You may not know much about priests, but be it an Old Testament priest or a Catholic priest today, they have ministerial responsibilities. And because of the competency of the soul, the Scripture teaches that we are a, a kingdom of priests. And what that means is you have ministerial responsibilities. We call it serving with your spiritual gifts. God gave you spiritual gifts to edify the body of Christ. That's the competency of the soul. The third thing that we believe that made, me so that, that made me Baptist was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If a person wants to be saved, there's only two options. Grace or works. I mean, those are the only two choices. Some people teach grace, some people teach work, some people teach combination of the two. Some people say it's kind of like a rowboat. A rowboat. You know, if, you, if you're in a rowboat, you've got two oars, right? One of them is grace and one of them is works. And they say that if you only use one oar, you're just going to spin around in circle. Well, that may be true for rowboats, but that's not true for salvation. We're not in a rowboat for salvation. We're in Jesus Christ for salvation. All right? And, and so in Christ, 
we get grace through faith in him don't need works now the fourth one is perseverance of the saints now how do i say that you know how how baptist traditionally said that if if saved always saved and you know that i like to phrase it differently how do i say it or no you you had it you 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 said it my way the first way the baptists typically say it once saved always saved and i like to say if saved always saved because i think there's a lot of baptists who are holding on to an experience that happened 25 30 years ago and they've not darkened the doors of the church they've not had anything good to say about the church or about the lord they've not prayed they've not read the word they've not served the lord and yet they're counting on something that happened 25 30 years ago to get them into heaven jesus said you'll know them by their fruit a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit and so that's why I say, if you're saved, you're always saved. You're going to persevere to the end. Paul put it this way. He who has been given a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation that's not lasting is not worth having. If it doesn't last, it's not really worth having. Jesus repeatedly spoke of eternal life. Heard a preacher say, the faith that fizzles at the finish had a flaw from the first. And that's true. If it doesn't last, it's not true. You'll persevere. Another thing that I found Baptists believe, and it made me want to be one of them, is baptism is by immersion for believers only. Baptism is by immersion, and it's for believers only. The word baptizo, which is the Greek word for baptize, in the New Testament Every time except for once in the book of Hebrews when it talks about being baptized by the blood of Christ, it's translated sprinkled. Every other time when it's in reference to a person's actual baptism, like the Ethiopian eunuch or Jesus with John at at, at the Jordan River, it means, the word baptizo means to dip or to immerse, okay? And and so that's why we immerse people. It's, It's not because... Listen, we don't immerse because we're Baptists. We're called Baptists because we immerse. Okay? And the reason we immerse is because that's the biblical model. Okay? Sprinkling came in and around the 300, about 315 or so when Constantine offered 30 pieces of silver and a white robe to every man in his army that would convert. Well, guess what? Thousands upon thousands said they converted. They just wanted the money and the robe. Okay, well, the priest had no way to baptize all those guys, and so they would take a branch and a bowl of water and just walk down the line and start sprinkling. So for 300 years, sprinkling was never an option. Nobody was sprinkled. It didn't, it didn't become an option until it was convenient. And, and so to be baptized, we believe you have to be the right candidate. It's believers only. Nobody in the New Testament was baptized before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's for believers only. Not only the right candidate, on the right authority. Only the New Testament church can do this. Has to be the right method. By immersion. You know, if I had a dog, I got a dog, and I've told my wife that um, if Gentry dies before I do, she's in trouble. She just better hope that I go first, because I love that little dog. He's, he's my buddy, all right? But if, if Gentry were to die, I wouldn't sprinkle just a little bit of dirt on him and say, there, you're buried, Right? I'd dig a hole, and I'd put him in it, and then I'd cover him completely up with dirt and say, now you're buried. Baptism is a picture of the death of self, okay? And what happens is we get buried into the hole, 
And then it's a picture of being raised in new life to walk with Christ. This is the new you that Jesus has made. And so that's why we believe that baptism is by immersion for believers only. Another one, I believe in the independence of the local church. It's what we believe is Baptist. Now, we voluntarily cooperate with others, but listen, Eastwood Baptist Church owns this land. They own this building. This building doesn't belong to the Baptist Association or the Kentucky Convention or the Southern Baptist Convention. We are autonomous. We don't have a bishop who can come in and tell us you have to believe this or you have to do this or your ministers have to move from here to here. Every church is autonomous. We believe in the independence of the local church, and I believe that is a scriptural model. We call our own ministers. We choose our own literature. We choose who and who not to cooperate with. One more. I believe in the separation of church and state. Now, I didn't say I believe in the separation of church from state. I believe in the separation of church and state. What does that mean? Well, we believe that the state does not run the church and the church does not run the state. But at the same time, all Christians, in fact, all Americans, we believe, should have re religious liberty, that, that every person should be able to worship according to their conscience, whether they're Christian or not. Okay? But there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that we should be muzzled as believers and not say what we believe to be true. In fact, I think we're being less than what we should be if we aren't a, a voice to the moral issues of the day. Okay, if we don't let our congressman know and we don't let our president know and others in authority know what, what we believe the scripture teaches, then we're not being obedient, I don't think. We pray for them, but I think we hold them accountable and we see that over and over again in the scriptures. So I'm a Christian by conversion, Baptist by conviction. Third, I am Southern Baptist by choice. Southern Baptist by choice. My great-grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher and church planter in California. Best we know, as far back as we can look, he's the only preacher in the family line. Last church he started was the First Baptist Church of Madera, Florida, and I, I got, I'm in Madera, California, and I got to preach there in June of 2000. What a, my great-aunt was still alive, and she was one of the charter members, and what, a, what an experience to be able to stand behind the pulpit of the church that my grandfather started back in the early 1950s. Well, God called me to be a pastor, okay? So I was convicted that I needed to be a Baptist, and so then I began to look at Baptist, and I became a Southern Baptist by choice. I looked it up today. Did you know there are at least 62 different Baptist denominations in America today? 62 different types of Baptist in America today. So I had a 1 in 62 shot. I mean, if, if I'm convicted to be a Baptist, I got 62 options. Well, by choice, I chose to be a Southern Baptist. All right? Now, notice that being Baptist and Southern Baptist comes after being Christian. Christian first, then Baptist, then Southern Baptist. Now, there are people here in Kentucky, there's a lot of them, called landmarkists. Anybody, anybody know what a landmarkist is? Landmarkism. Yeah, any, anybody ever heard of the book, The Trail of Blood? All right, landmarkism is the belief that Baptists go all the way back to the first century. That basically, Baptists are the church. Now, that's kind of taking what the folks up the street believe and changing it to be Baptist, because they believe that the Church of Christ is the church. And, and landmarkists believe, no, well, the Baptists are the church. Well, 
I think there's enough Baptists in hell to hold a revival. All right, I, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't trace it all the way back. And, and listen, friend, we're not Protestants. Do you understand that? Baptists are not Protestants. Why? Because the word Protestant came from those who were protesting the Catholic Church. If you want to know who a Protestant is, that's the Anglicans, the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, um, the... Uh, I had another one that I thought of. Presbyterian Church, those are all Protestants. They were birthed out of the protest of what the Catholic Church was teaching. Now, Baptists emerged out of a group called English Separatists. What were they separating from? The Church of England. See, the Anglicans protested the Catholic Church, said, y'all aren't doing things right. Well, the Separatists said, you think they're not doing things right? You guys aren't a whole lot better. And so they separated. And when they separated, there were two veins. You remember the Puritans? You remember hearing about the Puritans in early history? The Puritans believed they could purify the Anglican church, that they could clean it up. So they became Puritans. Well, the others were called separatists. They said it's hopeless to try to, to clean up the church, to purify it, so they separated. Many of them went to Holland, and they started baptizing by immersion. In fact, the ones who went to Holland met up with a group there called Anabaptist. Anybody ever heard of Anabaptist? Anna means re or again, and Baptist, of course, means to be baptized, okay? And so the Anabaptists were rebaptizing people. What were they doing? People that had been sprinkled or people that had been christened as an infant, they were rebaptizing them because they had come to faith in Christ, and that's the model of new testament baptism all right eventually baptists migrated to ireland where revival broke out and from there many baptists migrated to america in 1845 southern baptists were formed we were mission-minded from the start now it wasn't necessarily a good way we started because we started southern baptists strictly because the group that we were with said slaveholders could not be missionaries and so southern baptists actually started because we wanted the ability to have slaveholders to be missionaries well we've since in in recent days repented of the way that we were formed uh, of our original thoughts about civil rights and now today there are southern baptist churches and church members of every color of every ethnicity southern baptists have the largest missionary force in the entire world there's not another christian denomination that has as many missionaries on the field as Southern Baptist. Well, I said Christian denomination. The Mormons probably have more missionaries, but they're not Christian, okay? Last year, Southern Baptist and their missionaries baptized 299,378 people. That works out to one baptism every minute and 45 seconds. That means Southern Baptist experienced Pentecost every three days and 15 hours. 3,000 people were saved every three days and 15 hours throughout the entire year. Now, that sounds good, but so much more could be done when you consider the fact we've got about 17 million supposedly members. 299,378 or whatever doesn't seem so big anymore. Christian by conversion, Baptist by conviction, Southern Baptist by choice. Let me tell you the last thing. I'm at Eastwood by call. I'm at Eastwood here tonight by call. 
Jen and I moved to Bowling Green over 14 years ago because we believe God called us to Bowling Green. And you affirmed that call when you voted on us and accepted us to be your pastor. All right? Tom Rayner, I was reading today, back in 2016, he cited a statistic that ought to give us pause. The average Baptist pastor, as recently as 2016, the average stay was between three and four years. That's it. Honeymoon was over somewhere in that fourth year, and the pastor was gone. And, you know, we, what do we have? We have maybe two staff members that are less than, or, or only two that are less than three or four years. Everybody else has been here a whole lot longer than that. And, and so Eastwood is blessed with the tenure that we have. You know, my, my tenure as pastor just, and, and Dana's tenure as music pastor, we are four times the national average. Four times what Rainer says is the national average. See, I believe that when God calls you to a place, you stay until God releases you. I know a lot of preachers, man, when, when the grass looks greener on the other side, they just jump. They just go, and, and I don't think that's right. Now, there's been opportunities to go, and there have been places that grass looked greener, just to be honest, okay? But... Um, God hadn't released me, so I didn't go. And so I'm at Eastwood by call, the call of God that you affirmed. As members of this church, I think we owe Eastwood three things. We owe it our attendance. It's a message I ought to preach on Sunday morning, I think. <laughs> because today, you know, it used to be we considered regular attenders if you made three out of four weeks. You were considered a regular attender. That's the, the environment that most of us grew up in. Today, the generation today believes if you come one out of every three Sundays, you're a regular attender. I believe that as believers and as members of a church family, we should be in church as often as we can. Am I saying you've got to be there every time the doors are open? No, but I am saying that you ought to be in church every opportunity you get. You should. So we owe the church our attendance, we owe it our allegiance. Now what do I mean by allegiance? Our allegiance is represented by our check register. Now why do I say we owe our allegiance? Because God says we owe our tithes. God says an offering is above and beyond the tithe. See, a lot of folks think they give offerings, but they've a lot of people Sunday will give an offering to the Lighty Moon Christmas offering, but it's really not an offering. It's just part of their tithe. Because you don't ever give an offering until you've given your tithe. So it's tithes and offerings, so we owe our allegiance. The third thing we owe is our affection. The church is the bride of Christ. And it is wrong to speak about somebody's bride. You know, you talk about me, and I'll probably let you get away with it. Might even agree with you. You know, you are a horrible scoundrel. Well, yeah, you, and that's just the part of me you know. I, I, I might agree with you. But you start talking about my wife, and we're going to have issues. Pretty quickly, things are going to escalate, right? You just don't talk about a man's wife. The church is the bride of Christ. And Christians who talk ill of the church... Ought not happen. We owe our affection. I don't think the Lord looks kindly on speaking ill of his bride. And so why is Eastwood here? 
We believe that Eastwood Baptist Church exists for this reason. To develop relationships so that we can impact people with biblical answers to life's challenges. That's why we're here. We want to intentionally develop relationships with people outside of the church. Why? So that we can impact their life. But I don't want to impact them for Tom James. I just don't want to impact them and them say, you know, that old Tom, he's a good old boy. No, I want to impact them with biblical answers to their challenges. Do you know anybody who doesn't have any life challenges? If so, I want to meet them. Probably Hunter. My, my one-year-old grandson is about the only one I know that doesn't have a whole lot of challenges, all right? Everybody has challenges, and so our job, we're not called to be Living Hope or Hillview or Glendale or anybody else. We're called to be Eastwood, and we believe that Eastwood Baptist Church exists to develop relationships that impact people with biblical answers to life's challenges. That's who we are as a church. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share my heart and to share from your word. God, I thank you for the day in 1978 when you converted me, when you gave me a rebirth, when I was born of the Spirit. And God, like Apostle Paul, I, I can identify with his saying that he was the chief of sinners. And Lord, I know, I know my life and am amazed that you would choose to use someone like me. And yet you, you do. You have appointed me as a preacher of the gospel, and so I thank you for that. And God, I thank you that you give us a choice in how to identify with other believers, and I thank you that these who are here tonight have chosen to identify with Eastwood and with Southern Baptist and what we believe. God, we live in a community where the vast majority of people were upwards of 85% of the folks won't be in anybody's church this Sunday. God, give us a heart for them so that we can develop relationships with them, to impact them, to point them to the one who is the answer to all of their life's challenges. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we make our prayer in your name. Amen. Tonight, if you want to join the church,